afternoon and good evening. Welcome to another podcast for me and Mr. 80s. I'm Nick the Me Part. And there, Big Thunder, Mr. 80s. Hi, everybody. It's Daryl. Thank you for uh, joining us again. Today, we're we're trying to figure out what to call this show. We were going to call it something boring like uh, Side Projects and Supergroups. And Nick says, let's just call it Side Order of Awesome. And I'm like, oh, that's, yeah. that's great. Pretty much what we're talking about is people that either are so talented or think they're so talented that one band <laughs> cannot contain them. And so they have to have solo careers or, more often than not, form other bands. Or sometimes they all come together, these people that are so freaking awesome that one band can't contain them, and then they form super offshoot bands. Sometimes it's while the other band is still going on. Other times it's despite the band they just got kicked out of. It just, it's crazy. It just creates all kinds of uh, connections and weird little relationships throughout music. Yes, it's like, it's like the, uh, oh crap, the, uh, who's the actor? <laughs> Who's the actor? <laughs> degrees of separation. Oh, Kevin Bacon. Yes, yes. The, se- the six degrees of Kevin Bacon of rock. Yes. <laughs> That's, that should be the side note for this. <laughs> Gosh, who is the Michael Caine of rock? Who's been in, like, every band? Hmm. 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 Michael Davar. I don't know. <laughs> As the audience goes, uh, who? <laughs> Dude, he's in a he's in a TV commercial uh, for those, oh. those those cameras that uh, that uh, Ashton Kutcher guy is uh, selling, and uh, he's you know Ashton Kutcher just plops down on a yacht next to a very gray Michael DeBar, and I can't tell if we're supposed to go, hey, look, it's Michael DeBar, or if we're just supposed to go, oh, look, there's a gray-haired character actor who can't find work. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna guess they didn't. Uh... They didn't. <laughs> it's, it's not a celebrity it, it, cameo. It, yeah, maybe if, maybe someone liked him. You know, <laughs> they, they were friends. They're like, oh, I'll put you in my video. You know how Ted McGinley was the uh, patron saint of JumpTheShark.com? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm starting to think that Michael DeBar is going to become the patron saint of the Me and Mr. 80s podcast. <laughs> we might need to look, uh, find a picture of him to put on the Facebook page. <laughs> so people can go, oh, that guy. Oh, that guy, yeah. It's not, and it's not Michael Desbars. No, no. Michael Debar is how it's pronounced. I remember when he joined the uh, live, uh, the, the touring version of the Power Station, and everyone's like, uh, Michael Debar from the band Checkered Past. Checkered Past spelled Q-U. Of course. And uh, we're all going, what? Who? <laughs> yes, you, you wanted to see Robert Palmer <laughs> and you get Michael Debar. Oh, come on. <laughs> So to give some examples of the kind of bands that we're talking about, uh, I kind of want to run through a little bit of a list so that people can understand kind of the, the scope of what we're talking about. So mm-hmm. we're not only talking about stuff like the expensive winos where, uh, you know, Keith Richards during breaks with the Rolling Stones forms this group called the expensive winos and records a solo album and goes on a tour. There's not only that kind of stuff, but then there's things like super heavy, which currently Mick Jagger is in with the son of Bob Marley and the singer, Josh, uh, Josh stone and uh, producer and former Eurythmic Dave Stewart and the guy, uh, the Indian guy who scored Slumdog millionaire. You know, so that's kind of a weird group, but then you got stuff like velvet revolver where you've got a bunch of guys whose bands have imploded <laughs> And then who form another band. So there's just, there's all kinds of different configurations here that we're talking about. Exactly. Uh, 
I think uh, to get you uh, kick-started here, Nick, let's talk about the grunge-era side <laughs> order of awesome, because uh, Mad Season and Temple of the Dog yes, were, were two grunge. I mean, this, this whole side order of awesome thing has happened throughout rock history. You've not only got the old Absolutely. guys like Keith doing it, you had guys from the grunge era that were doing it. So tell us about the Mad Season and Temple of the Dog. Well, Temple of the Dog was a was a one-off uh, album done by uh, Chris Cornell, um, and basically it was almost like Chris Cornell fronting what became Pearl Jam. Even though it came out actually after Pearl Jam, um, like almost soon after it, but I remember um, that I'd, I'd taken back something that I bought at a record store, and they the the new release that week um, was Temple of the Dog. So I was just like, oh, it's that Soundgarden that I knew, and that guy from Pearl Jam, and so I bought it. It actually was very audacious when it came out because it was sort of like. Wow, jumping the gun a little bit with the supergroup. You're not even you're not even really stars yet. <laughs> yeah, they were I mean this was before any of the you know, any of the superness of the of those bands took off. I mean they were really Soundgarden had just been, you know, putting out bad motor fingers or and so but they had a couple albums before that and you know, Pearl Jam was just I think they must have just had like their first single or something out. So I mean it was really before you knew that it was a super group. It was like, but it, it was put together because yes. of Andrew Wood. Andrew Wood was the singer for Mother Love, uh, Bone, Mother Love Bone, which is the band that Pearl Jam was before it became Pearl Jam, for the exactly. most part. Uh, and, and Andrew Wood, you know, the whole grunge thing coming from Seattle, it was, it was pretty much, until the record labels got involved, it was like any city with its local bar scene. And so all these guys knew each other. And so Andrew Wood is fronting Mother Love Bone and then overdoses on Seattle's favorite drug other than caffeine, heroin. And it kind of, you know, sent the community reeling. And so these guys, these future, you know, very, very soon to be stars came together to record this project in his memory. And yeah, it was just a tribute album of friends, you know, and it just sort of happened that, you know, grunge happened they all became superstars and it became an album that got released. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't done in the, the mode of, you know, let's be a super group and let's, you know, it, it wasn't done in that vein. It really was just a bunch of local guys getting together and singing. And, uh, and there weren't that many songs on the album either. Wasn't it like only no, it six, only like, six or eight songs? Yeah, I think it was maybe eight songs. And, uh, were they all original compositions, or were there some covers in there to pad? I can't even remember. No, no, it was all, I mean, uh, it, it was, I had just seen it recently again when I saw the uh, Pearl Jam uh, 20 years uh, video that was done by Cameron Crowe about mm -hmm. the band, and they talked again about Andrew Wood and how they, you know, all come up there, and they all, you know, it, basically the it happened, you know, they, they started writing songs together because, they didn't know what else to do, and they weren't sure if they actually wanted to go on being a band because they weren't sure, you know. This was, the the members of the bands had also been in other bands. There was a Green River was one of the bands that they were in, and there was just, you know, this was everyone who was in Mother Love Bone had kind of thought, okay, here you go. This is going to be our big hit. We're going to be awesome. We're going to be, you know, 
super rock stars and then you know this, this after, happens after the mother love bone debut is actually it's actually in the pipeline but andrew wood actually dies before it's even released yeah and he well i mean he did i think like the week before it released or something i mean just really you know taking all the air out of the uh, uh out of the release so they were you know kind of lost and didn't really know what to do and uh that's how they started writing these songs with uh chris cornell and then then they kind of got into that mode of, well, maybe we can keep doing this. And then they got the tape from Eddie Vedder, who was in uh, Southern California or something, who had heard some of their instrumental tracks, put vocals on it, send it back to them. And that's when they said, hey, come up and visit. So then that's how the Vedder is on one song on there called Hunger Strike. and But that's how they kind of, they were starting to be a new band and they also still had these songs that they had done that ended up being uh, Temple of the Dog. So Eddie's only on the one the one track, the big single. Yep. But they did a uh, they played it together when they did uh, Lal Blues together in '92. So how many of the songs on the album do you think are explicitly about losing someone? Um, I, I you know Reach Down I think was definitely that was their the the big. Um, centerpiece of the thing that was like you know a 15 minute song and um kind of uh wild and strung together but then you know like four wild world could have been maybe talking about living in a uh you know you can probably you know draw parallels to to that and uh i i really don't have any idea what hunger strike was about I mean, yeah me <laughs> um I'd say that there was maybe, you know, half the songs had something to deal with it, and then the rest of them were just songs that came out of getting together and, you know, writing. But it was definitely definitely worth checking out if you ever, you know, were a fan of any of those bands or the 90s grunge sound. The Mad Seasons got Lane Staley from Alice in Chains as the lead singer. That's pretty much all I know about Mad Season. Um, yeah, uh, Mad Season was... Uh, I can't even remember now. Um, it came out later. I mean, grunge had pretty much had a firm hold on popular music at the point that Mad Season came out. It was uh, Lane Staley and Screaming Trees drummer and uh, Mike McCready from Pearl Jam. And uh, as a matter of fact, I, I heard that there was they were going to release a second album um, when it seemed like Lane Staley wasn't going to do this. They were going to release... A Mad Season Two and use uh, Screaming Trees uh, frontman Mark Mark something or other. Wow, I can't even remember his name anymore. But yeah, he was going to do the lead singing for it, but that, that apparently never happened. Um, yeah, I, I I know that they had. There was a point where they were touring with uh, Pearl Jam. Uh, Allison Chains was, and uh, I have have a, a bootleg of a show where they did. Uh, mad seasoned open for Pearl Jam. So what brought those guys together? Do you have any idea how that happened? Because they were all in the same, you know, from the same area again. I mean, it's just uh, another one of those everyone's friends. And then you're, you're two in together and you just put that. That's as far as I know, it was just, you know, a, a side project where they were just playing with people and said, hey, this is kind of working out. Maybe we should do something with it. So for something completely different. Which it seems like a lot of where these, you know, all these side projects we're going to talk about is, you know, it just sort of seems like it, it just sort of happened 
a lot of times naturally where you're just playing with friends and suddenly you're like, hey, we should go on tour with this. People kind of, yeah, they just kind of fell together, which I guess then we can draw a, a parallel between those situations and the traveling Wilburys. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no idea how that came together. And uh, we've got, you know, uh, George Harrison, uh, Roy Orbison, Bob Dylan, Jeff Lynne, and Tom Petty. Yeah. Who get together and uh, each kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek adopt a fake name with the last name of Wilbury, and so they form this group, you know, ostensibly as a group of brothers or cousins or something. But it was all done with a wink because they didn't try to disguise their identities. Well, I think they have to do that. I, uh, a lot of times you'll see, as far as from what I've seen from side projects, they have to do it for the legal reason, is that you can't credit some things to people because they have a deal with a you know uh, a record label that says you know I won't put out other albums, so you you can you can't credit you know Bob Dylan on an album by Columbia Columbia if you're signed <laughs> to EMI right so which always you know ends up leading to odd questions where they you know <laughs> name themselves as Wilburys okay but I still don't understand how do you ever did you ever hear how they got together. Well, I was just getting ready to kind of get into that because there's some interesting parallels between all the guys in that group other than Dylan, which is that Orbison and Harrison were both kind of enjoying some later career renaissance. You know, they had they had kind of been quiet for a while, mm-hmm. and then uh, Orbison with Mystery Girl, the, the Mystery Girl album that he did with U2, and uh, George Harrison with the Cloud Nine album and the huge hit that he had with Got My Mind Set on You. Uh, had kind of you know put them back in the in the forefront, and then even Petty with uh, and then Tom Petty had kind of reinvented his uh, his sound with the help of Jeff Lynne, mm-hmm. uh, and so they're all kind of of interconnected there with that that period of change. Now then, I know that Petty and Dylan had a prior relationship because uh, they had gone out on a big uh, summer tour together a few years earlier and then of course dylan and harrison knew each other from the 60s mm-hmm. uh so i, I kind of think that it was just kind of you know some guys knew each other and those guys knew other people and it just sort of came together that's an amazingly odd come together and yeah. what's really even stranger is that even though they all did take turns uh you know writing and co-writing and sharing lead vocals uh jeff lynn really is the one who I think is most responsible for the sound because when you listen to a Wilburys song, it sounds so much like the Petty stuff of the era, and Jeff Lynne was Petty's go-to producer at that time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and the, yeah, the kind of strange that the the least known guy really kind of probably had the most to do with their sound. Yeah, and I'm 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 not exactly sure that's a good thing. Because I, I think it, it would, I would like to have heard what they what they sounded like without Jeff Lynne's production. I mean, I, I like you know some of the songs from that era, but a lot of the problem that I had with um, Petty's albums from that era is that they all sounded too much alike. Yeah, and I think that was Lynne's production on Definitely. there. And you know, when you get that much of a supergroup with that many different personalities. I would have liked to have heard, you know, 
the differences rather than having them all filter through Jeff Lynn. Mm-hmm. Of course, an argument could also be made that when you get you know that many uh, different personalities and that many egos in a room, that you do need somebody to act as the uh, unifying force. Yeah, that's so, possibly true. Either way. Uh, now, on a, then a, a flip side then of of people kind of uh, coming together from outside bands and and forming then a new group from these kind of spare parts is what happened with uh, Duran Duran's Great Schism of 1985, where uh, the band, we can't really say they split in half since there's five members, uh, but <laughs> two members go off and form the power station, and three members go off and form Arcadia. And so you now have the the members of Duran Duran forming two other bands. Now, Arcadia, I'm uh, pretty certain that it was a self-contained unit of Simon, Nick, and Roger, whereas... Uh, with the power station, Andy and John, of course, joined Tony Thompson and Robert Palmer. Now, isn't it weird that uh, as, you know, a, a child of the uh, cutout bins, you know, where we would dumpster dive for everything interesting for a dollar, that of those two groups, you would think that where the lead singer go goes is where the fans would go. Yeah. But that absolutely did not happen. No. Power station took off with a different lead singer. And Arcadia was cut out bin fodder. I mean, that was everywhere in there. And I never even uh, heard the rest of the So Read the Rose album. I only ever heard Election Day, Mm -hmm. which wasn't a bad song. No. Uh, I don't know what the rest of the album sounded like, though. Yeah. And and it never, you know, no other singles. I mean, if they ever released one, it never did anything. And... I know it was supposed to be kind of exploring the more ethereal, Roxy Music-influenced side of Duran Duran. That was supposed to be kind of the whole point of it. It still sounded enough like Duran Duran. I mean, when you have the lead singer in there, you, you, you'd think that that would still carry enough weight with the fans. But I, 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 I never really thought about that, but that is kind of odd. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> and then the power station, uh, in my opinion, was formed so that... Uh, Andy Summers could, or Andy Summers, Andy Taylor <laughs> could play the guitar, could open it up a little bit. Yeah, and they did. They kicked ass. <laughs> and then when you kind of, you know, brought in that uh, that chic influence with not only Tony Thompson, but then with Bernard Edwards uh, producing mm-hmm. and kind of uh, gave it that. Uh, it was just it was a, an interesting uh, collision of. A, a new romantic guitarist who wanted to play rock and roll, and then a rhythm section uh, that's that's heavily influenced by dance music, <laughs> and then you put on top of it uh, Robert Palmer, who at the time uh, really had more of a reputation as a journeyman blue-eyed soul singer. I mean, that's kind of what his uh his rep had been for a few albums and it, it's just it's the kind of thing that on on paper uh sounds like a bit of a train wreck <laughs> and and yet they ended up putting out one of the best albums of the decade yeah that was a great album and really underrated oh yeah well especially you can tell how underrated it was because they couldn't even get their second album released in America mm-hmm. i mean jeez <laughs> how do you how do you sell that many records and then they go yeah never mind Grunge. I blame grunge. <laughs> but as I've said, I blame grunge for everything. So, <laughs> so there's that. Um, 
we've got quite a lot of uh, of groups on our list, but uh, I'd really like to talk about contraband since we've just been doing a little bit of mm-hmm. of research on that. What a what an odd what an odd group. <laughs> and some of you out there might even be you know saying to yourself. Uh, who is Contraband, or because it's such a dull name, you might even be thinking of a band called Contraband that isn't even the band that we're talking about. But pretty much it was it was put together and and billed and promoted as a uh, a hair metal supergroup, mm. with the only problem being that it consisted of B-listers <laughs> from hair metal to begin with. Yeah, the kind of people you wouldn't have remembered anyway. So we, ha- I think probably the biggest name was Cher. What's her name from Vixen? Mm-hmm. Cher something. And then Cher. after her would have been Bobby Blotzer from Rat, who was yeah. on drums. Uh, and then who else did we have in there? We had well, I'd say might say Michael Schenker had the oh, biggest, oh, had yeah, the biggest oh, name. My apologies. Yeah, my- Michael Schenker definitely from UFO would. And who else? And Tracy Guns. Tracy Guns from L.A. Guns. So we've got, this, this is what the band so far is made yeah. up of. We've got the guitar player. We've got the chick from Vixen. We've got Tracy Guns from L.A. Guns. Okay, now, uh, or no, wait, who, who's playing bass? Because Schenker, Schenker's playing guitar. Well, uh, I assume they're going to have uh, Tracy playing bass. Oh, no, no, wait, no, Cher. Cher's, Cher's bass. Schenker's guitar, Tracy's guitar, Blotzer's and drums. Blotzer's drums. And then the lead singer, of course, is the <laughs> world-famous... Richard Black. Who? <laughs> From the legendary L.A. band, Shark Island. What? <laughs> and Shark Island apparently is, there's a million stories from the hair band era. Shark Island was a band that ruled the Sunset Strip and for some reason could not get a record deal until every other hair band had already been signed. And by the time they put their record out in 1989, nobody knows it yet, but hair metal is about to expire. And they become not even a footnote to history. Yeah, they became nothing. <laughs> they, they aspire to be a footnote to history. And so that's what contraband is all about. And just what a, what a strange idea. Yeah, and kind of interesting that they would call it a super group considering, you know, you're not, and except for, except for Shanker. I don't think anybody, is going to really recognize, well, again, maybe Tracy Guns, but more for the fact that, you know, his legacy to Axl Rose than anything else. Right. They're not going to really know who any of these people are. And, and then, and then to have all these named people and then get a, per, a front man who nobody fucking knows. What a dumb idea of not, <laughs> how do you not get somebody? Well, I guess, you know, actually, these prob- these people are probably all from the L.A. scene that Shark Island r- apparently ruled the roost on for a while, so they're thinking it's a good get. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the, the record company must have gone, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I mean, really. In, in, in hindsight, I think that the record actually would have been more successful if it had been marketed as a Michael Shanker solo album. Yeah, actually. Now, I can understand at the time what they're saying to themselves is Michael Shanker is really more of a cult guitarist, and if we put out a Michael Shanker solo album, it's definitely not even going to go gold. So let's promote this as the, the hair metal supergroup because hair metal is so popular right now that anything <laughs> that is billed that way is going to sell. And I would love to know how many copies that record actually sold because I'm willing to bet that it's not as much 
as it would have sold with Schenker's automatic built-in audience. Well, and it came out in 1991. Bad timing. So this is this is where you've already you know hit the death nail for uh, uh, hair metal and grunge. So they're trying to come out with a hair metal supergroup that really isn't that much of a supergroup, fronted by a guy you know and heard of, and they totally should have gone Shanker solo. I mean, I, yeah, maybe someone would have paid attention. You know, there was a single for this album though. So if you if you did happen to hear it, because I do remember the song, it was a cover of Mata Hoople's "All the Way from Memphis," and it was a catchy song, but. Um, yeah, they just. I, I wonder, were they, uh, was that a coincidence that they were covering Mata Hoople, or did they make that decision after Once Bitten? Hmm. Well, it had to have, yeah, Once Bitten was before that, so yeah. So, well, jumping on the Hoople train. Hey, it, 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 I'm sure they were trying just about anything to try and get recognized <laughs> because. Except, except promoting Michael Shanker. <laughs> <laughs> Idiots. It's interesting you bring up Tracy Guns because I honestly think that L.A. Guns as a band is an interesting uh, story in the whole side order of awesome. Because mm-hmm. as we all know, really what it is is Guns and Roses is the side order in this <laughs> in this case. Because Guns N' Roses, the whole reason that they're even named that is because members of L.A. Guns and members of Hollywood Rose came together and formed Guns N' Roses. But in this case, the side order eclipsed the popularity of the original bands so much that really it has kind of rendered L.A. Guns as a side order. In fact, I remember uh, the time that it was taking uh, for Guns to release a follow-up to Appetite. It was before, before Lies had come out. I actually went out and got cocked and loaded by LA Guns just so that I could have, you know, kind of my, you know, the close Picks. proximity. It's kind of like, you know, when you can't find your favorite brand of beer at the store, you've got your backup. That's kind of what LA Guns Cocked and Loaded was, which by the way, Cocked and Loaded is an awesome album. I've never really listened to anything that that, that LA Guns has ever really done. It's I was mean much, to, but it's yeah. pretty much their only good album. Did you ever hear, I know that there was a release of uh, tracks, I think they even put it out as like Hollywood Rose, that were tracks that, you know, were seemingly unfinished tracks that Rose and Tracy did at the time before they were famous. Yeah, there was. There was a Hollywood Rose album that came out. Basically, it's five songs. And so the album had, uh, let's see, the album had the demo versions of those five songs. It had the full band versions of those five songs, and then it had remixes of those five remixes. songs. And it, it was just, you know, it was obviously a cash grab. Did you ever hear it? No. I never, I, did. I never did either. I was, yeah. Velvet Revolver. Uh, so Velvet Revolver, you've got... Was Matt Sorum their drummer? Mm-hmm. So you got three guys from Guns N' Roses. And you've got the lead singer of STP. Yep. Which I'm not a big fan of Stone Temple Pilots, so I wasn't all that excited about it. But any any excuse to get Slash on a record, <laughs> I'm all for. Oh, yeah. I, I loved their first album. I thought the first album was excellent. What about the second one, which coincidentally was called Contraband? 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is trying to find contraband when you're all, all you run into is that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it never really, I, I wanted to like it, but I just kept listening to it going, eh. That's how I felt about all their stuff. I really wanted to love that first album, but it just, it just kind of fell short for me. I, I don't know if it's because I just am genetically programmed to respond that way to anything that Scott Whelan does. <laughs> the guy just does not do it for me. Well, you know, uh, I, I've never been a, a big uh, Stone Temple Pilots fan either. I think they had a couple of, you know, I'd say maybe three or four good songs to me, but I never really went deep into their albums. But I thought they did a, 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 a good, entertaining job with the first album. We've got quite a list here. <laughs> We've got lots of good stuff. We've got a lot of stuff. We don't even know where to go next. Hey, do you have a, anything you want to specifically touch on? Um, not really. I think we, we came up with a lot of interesting uh well, just staying into the grunge era we could talk about uh audio slave which was when uh chris, chris cornell, cornell fronted rage against the machine yes exactly <laughs> that's a head scratcher yeah <laughs> that was the one i i wouldn't have expected them to come out with but i think he i, I i've always liked soundgarden i've always liked cornell as a singer but to me, the only problem I had with that is that it seemed like he busted his vocals during that, during that, uh, that side project. Like he was trying to yell too much and he always like sounded like he was a little in pain when he was singing. I liked some of the songs and stuff, but again, there was another one of those things where I liked the first album more than I liked the second album. I, I kind of thought the, the second album, I, I, again, was another one of those. I wanted to like it more than I was actually liking it, but I kept trying to listen to it, expecting that I'm going to like it more. I just and, really wonder how much that had to do with Tom Morello needing to pay us rent. <laughs> That's what I always wondered about that band. Well, he seems to, uh, now that he's, uh, now that Slave is gone, and now they, he's, he seems to be doing offshoots all the time now. You know, I think well, he's he doing trying the, to get, doing the solo stuff as Night Watchman, right? But didn't he have another? There was another band that had a really obnoxiously long, you know, like something, something in the somethings. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah. I thought Rage was back together now. Well, yeah, that's the thing is that I, I heard it was, they got back together with uh, Zach Delaroca. Thank you, Zach Delaroca, and they were going to do something there. And you know, I, I know that they played some dates, but then I kept hearing that you know. Morello kept doing all these other bands, and it's like... Well, that's just it. Morello no longer needs help paying his rent now. <laughs> and so that, that's why Audio Slave went bye-bye. But at the time that Audio Slave came out, <laughs> nobody really knew who Tom Morello was. He's really kind of raised his uh, his notoriety. His stock. <laughs> especially by showing up at a lot of these protests and uh, you know, becoming kind of the you know, the Che Guevara of, uh, of our era. <laughs> Yes. You can see his face Peace on, on all of t-shirts. Yes, yeah. that's exactly where I was going with that. See his face on, <laughs> on t-shirts. Um, damn Yankees. <laughs> so here you've got members of Styx, Night Ranger, and Ted Nugent. Yeah, Ted's a, Ted's an odd little duck there. Yes, he is. I mean, uh, he seems, 
you know, uh, what was he, the uh, wild man of uh, something Detroit or the Motor City Madman? Motor City Madman, God, how would I? Yes, uh, who used to open up for Kiss? Um, but it, you know, you, you once you, became the legal guardian of a seventeen-year-old just so he could have sex with her. Wow, really? Which I'm not really sure how that works because when you're someone's legal guardian, I don't think you're allowed to have sex with them. That, yeah, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> well, the seventies were a really odd time, <laughs> weren't they? <laughs> wow. Um, hmm. Well, that that's 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 a lot of information for him. Um, yeah, how does he get in with you know sticks, you know, and you know that that is not a a combination of people I would have said. Oh yeah, they know. They probably know. You know, Ted Nugent, their buddies, and they hang out on the weekends, and they want to start a band with him. It's like, really? I mean, all that I can figure is that they're all Republicans. I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously, the Nuge is a staunch conservative, uh, <laughs> except when it comes to child molestation, and uh, maybe Shaw and Jack Blades, Tommy Shaw from Sticks, Jack Blades from Night Ranger. Maybe, maybe they met at a fundraiser. I don't know. $5,000 a plate GOP fundraiser. <laughs> they all love hunting. That's what it is. That was... Well, yeah. Speaking of offshoots with uh, um, Nuge, they had the super group that was actually called Super Group, which, what was that, Savage Animals? <laughs> Remember the, was the TV the show? The CBS show? Yeah, yeah, VH1 or something they, where they, they put him... Was that, that was all fabricated. Was Tommy Lee in that, too? No, it was... Uh, it was uh, the guy from Anthrax, Scott Ian, uh-huh. um, the guy from uh, Biohazard, who's married to the porn star Tara Patrick. Oh, Spider Jones or no, Spider, no. Evan Seinfeld. Evan his. Seinfeld, there you go. And, um, oh, uh, Sebastian Bach, <laughs> and then the Nuge, and then uh, Jason Bonham. Oh, my God. It was a, it was all I, done I, for a TV series, yeah, I, but they I, actually I, were entertaining. I had thought about Supergroup, but I left them off because they were brought together by a TV show. Yeah, I just thought since the since we were talking about projects with the Nuge, I'd say one band that reminds me a lot of uh, Damn Yankees is Bad English. Oh, uh, which you've got. Okay, this is this is how this works. All right, so Jonathan Cain was in The Babies with John Waite. Oh, I didn't know he was in that. And then Jonathan Cain was in Journey with Neil Sean. So Neil Sean, Jonathan Cain, and John Waite form Bad English. As their drummer, they get Dean Castronova. Dean Castronova is now the drummer for the reformed Journey, of which Jonathan Cain and Neil Sean are both members. Wow. That's a... Cycle. <laughs> so it's, I mean, pretty much it's, it's you know, Jonathan Cain is kind of the, what links all these guys together. And the first Bad English album is actually a, a really good commercial uh, arena rock album. Didn't they have a big hit? Their big hits were ballads. Yeah. Uh, when I See You Smile, oh, which yeah. is used oh. on that dentistry commercial now. Uh, and then Price of Love. Uh, but the first single was actually a song called Obsession, uh, or Possession, pardon me, which was more of a of a rock song. And I think that uh, I think one of their songs was used as the theme music for the movie Tango and Cash, <laughs> Stallone and Kurt Russell. 
Wow. But that's actually uh, not a bad not a bad record. But I kind of equate it to Damn Yankees because you've got guys that you know were pretty big, mm-hmm. uh, but but probably more known for their bands than for their for their own individual names. I mean, well, see, I don't really. What about the babies? Did they have a big single or something? They had uh, a handful of of pretty monster hits. Because I really, John Waite to me is only the uh, missing you guy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, ne- I really, I've never heard, I don't know if I ever heard well, any back, of their songs on the album again. or anything. Back on My Feet Again is the, the huge one. Hmm. I, I must probably, I'd probably know if I heard it. But there's there's a, a handful of other ones that were that were pretty big. Hmm. Do they have a Cleveland connection? The Babies? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Not that I'm aware of. Um... Kind of a minor footnote would be, uh, remember the group The Breakfast Club? Not the movie, the band, but their one hit, Right on Track? No, uh, the name sounds familiar, but... They, uh, Madonna was their original drummer. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so they eventually did have a hit uh, a couple of years. Like the, the hit was in 86, 87. Uh, Madonna was not our drummer then, obviously. <laughs> but so that's you know, kind of an interesting side note of a. Was there anybody else that went on to anything from that? Nope. Wow. Just Madonna's, which I can't imagine having Madonna as your drummer. I didn't even know she <laughs> knew how to play the drums. That's kind of the re- reverse Pete Best story. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know about the Vinnie Vincent invasion? Not much of anything. I, I don't really know, like. Uh, I I knew it because of the the Kiss connection, but um, I I bought one album out of like a BMG thing, and I was like, "Mm." because it's Vinny's playing guitar, but then like somebody else is singing. It's kind of like one of those like uh, Ingvi Malmsteen things where the guitarist doesn't sing, and the the singers they get for some reason, and I have no idea why this is, but guitarists who don't sing get shitty singers. I mean, there's a whole Probably list of Probably because these. they don't want the singer to upstage the guitar playing. Yes, but then people don't want to listen to the album, and I'm like, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, Steve I did that, where he got some, like, uh, screamo metal dude to sing on his album. That was awful. <laughs> He's a great guitarist, and that's that album blew. Well, so Vinnie Vincent actually... Vinnie Vincent leaves Kiss, or is forced out of Kiss, and forms the Vinnie Vincent Invasion. And then Vinnie Vincent leaves the Vinnie Vincent Invasion, and do you know what happens to the Vinnie Vincent Invasion? It gets better. They become Slaughter. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> Fly to the Angels, up I, all night. I, I, I know Slaughter. I did not realize. Yes, that is. Slaughter was his, was his backing band? That, that is a Vinnie Vincent-less Vinnie Vincent Invasion. No shit. Wow. Wow, I like Slaughter. <laughs> See, I told you, folks, strange connections. There's just a lot of <laughs> that I did not know at all. Hmm. Uh, now, you had mentioned uh, a guy who's pretty much made a career out of Side Order of Awesome, which is Jack White. Yes. Now, I happen to think that Jack White is just the ghost of Johnny Depp, even though Johnny Depp isn't dead, uh, <laughs> and don't really have much use for Jack White. So this is all you. Oh, I I. I Oddly enough, I like his side projects more than I like, you know, his, I would say the main project would be White Stripes. I would agree with that. And um, to me, 
uh, and this is probably going to be sacrilegious saying this so close to where the Black Keys started, but I, I equate White Stripes with the Black Keys, where when I listen to their albums, where they kind of do this um, modern-day version of an old blues record, it just makes me want to go to listen to an old blues record. <laughs> I don't really, I don't really hear a lot of this thing that makes me want to go. Oh, how new and interesting! It makes me sing. Oh, wow, that sounds like stuff I've heard before. And so, uh, you know, so I haven't. I probably have not given either of those bands their 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 total due, even though I've tried. Um, but their offshoots, uh, rap on tours, and I'll have to look this one up because um, him and uh, singer songwriter Brendan Benson were the two main people in the Tours who released two albums. And, uh, boy, I, I think both of those albums are really excellent. Um, the first it's one broke and poppier, right? Well, I would more say melodic. it's, it's melodic, but it's really, um, it was one of those things I noticed when I put it in shuffle with a bunch of different songs that I kept going, Ooh, what's that? And I would look and it'd be another song from you know, the Rackon Tours. Cause they don't really sound like with Jeff Lynn when we were talking about earlier, where everything goes to this Jeff Lynn filter where it all sounds like Jeff Lynn. You could play, you know, anybody and go, oh, that's Jeff Lynn's production. Yeah. All of these things sound completely different, but interesting. You know, you can kind of hear an influence of, you know, this kind of sounds like, um, like a soul pop record from the 50s, and this kind of sounds like a psychedelic, you know, record from the 60s, and this kind of sounds like, you know, arena rock from the 80s. And, but all those different things sound interesting and different enough to all be them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I thought that was a great offshoot. But then even better than that, to me, was The Dead Weather, which is now um, Jack White playing the drums and... Uh, I'll look and see. The uh, Allison Mosshart from The Kills is the uh, lead singer. And this is kind of one of those, uh, kind of a, it has like a, a 60s sound to it where it kind of sounds like, um, if, um, gosh, who's the, Wild Horses, um, Rolling Stones, no, a female singer, um, Lou Reed era, Nico, no, um, Marianne Faithful, much seventies uh, more than eighties. Um, uh, she did a song that was covered by um, the girl from Ten Thousand Maniacs. Here comes the night. Um, oh, Patty Smith. Patty Smith. If Patty Smith, if someone who uh, had a uh, had a I, I kind of see Patty Smith fronting the Rolling Stones, but there I, I I can't really think of someone better than Patty Smith. But I, I kind of think of something that has a. You threw me off there because Patty Smith's album was called Horses, and you said Wild Horses, which made me think Rolling Stones. But well, I'm, I'm I, with you now. Well, I was thinking Wild Wild Horses from the Stones. And actually, her big hit was Because the Night, which was written by Bruce Springsteen. Weird connections. Wow. <laughs> uh, watch foot there. Oh, no problem. Um, and I, I can't even think if that's a, a good enough uh, version because I'm not well versed with Patty Smith. But there's just sort of a uh, a very um, 
gruff but interesting um and I think you know Allison kind of puts a little uh, throaty sexiness into that but it's a, it's a great uh, sound that again sounds like you may have heard it before but you haven't and I think that to me was always the point that the stripes and the black keys were missing where it did it sounded too much like something else where this one sounds like it's influenced by something else but you definitely have the feel of something new also. So it's got that familiarity to it, so the first time you listen to it, you're able to enjoy it, Mm -hmm. but then it also has enough of its own thing that it holds up to repeated listenings. Exactly. To me, yeah. Both of those albums are really excellent. Yeah. What is so interesting is that uh, there is a song that I would actually describe the exact same way as when you first hear it, it's just it's comforting and it's like you've heard it before, but it's actually completely original, and people are not going to believe this. Uh, it's uh, the one you love by Glenn Fry. Hmm. And if you think about that with you know the the sax melody, and it's just uh, it's a very simple song, but a very uh, uh, bracing song that really does hold up to repeated listens. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of brings us to discussing the Eagles. And they're another strange strange kind of a situation. They don't really fit into the kind of categories that a lot of the other artists that we've talked about do. But with the Eagles, you're talking about a band full of guys who then all had solo careers mm-hmm. after the band broke up for the first time. Uh, to varying degrees of success, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Joe Walsh became more of a kind of a classic rock god. Uh, Timothy B. Schmidt and Don Felder became footnotes. And then kind of the two titans, the Twin Towers, would be Glenn Fry <laughs> and Don Henley. And those are the two that I really want to focus on because uh, I would say that folks would say that Henley is the one who's had the most successful solo career between, well, not only of all of them, but especially if you put him head-to-head with Glenn. Mm-hmm. And you would, would you agree agree with that? Oh, yeah, I would, too. I mean. uh, but that at the same token, Glenn Fry's solo career actually has more the Eagles sound to it than Henley's. I would agree with that, too. And I just find that really interesting, since the Eagles are... So freaking popular. I mean, people just love the Eagles. There is something about that Eagles sound that really resonates with people on a large scale. It has got mass appeal. Oh, yeah. And so it's surprising to me that uh, the guy who adhered closest to that in his solo career did not have as much success as somebody who deviated from it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I don't know if... Uh if it was a, a lack of interest in the Glenn Fry sound, but I think it was um, Henley really hitting the note um, that pop his his pop songs really took off in a even more of a mainstream way. I think a lot of people liked the Eagles, but um, as as is always the case, you know the. The most people will like the most common denominator song, and the most common denominator in music is pop songs. So, you know, Henley had the most success because his songs were more mainstream than Glenn Fry. Really? 
That's an interesting perspective because I always thought of, as far as you know, capital A artist, uh, as as Henley being more of the artist, and Fry being more of the uh, you know rock and roll guy, being more of the musician. I think Glenn Fry took more chances than uh, Henley did. Really? Oh yeah. How so? Well, I I think you know. Um, Something like uh, Smuggler's Blues is, you know, is a bit dark, is a bit um, deep for mainstream pop songs. And, you know, um, I, I think Henley was um, f- away from music. He was he was deep, you know, with the whole Walden thing. And he was, you know... Uh, Doing things that were getting him in the press that made him sound deep, but I don't think the songs were as um, were as as deep as he was. I should say. I think he's I think he's more on uh, now. Uh, don't get me wrong. I I I think he's got great albums and mm-hmm. I think he has great songs, but I, I don't think he's I don't think he's reaching for you know another level. I think he's pretty much you know putting. Uh, a one-level pop song out there. That's, that's so, well-crafted. Right. No, it's, but, it's, it's so interesting you're saying this, because I would say the exact same thing, only what you're saying about Fry, I would say about Henley. <laughs> I like both of their solo careers, and it's not, you know, comparing them, it's not meant to denigrate one or the other. Mm-hmm. But as far as who had the richer material and who had the the deeper solo career... I would say that it's absolutely Don Henley. I mean, his uh, his very first single, uh, solo single, which is, is not as well remembered, is Johnny Can't Read, which is about uh, the crisis in the you know U.S. educational system and how it leads to a life of crime. His second single, which was huge, was Dirty Laundry, mm-hmm. which was about how the news media was becoming entertainment and really in many ways predicted stuff like a current affair and inside edition and and so forth. Uh, then you go to The Boys of Summer, which is about almost like continuing the themes that he began on Hotel California with uh, the loss of innocence and regret. And then that leads us up to a song called The End of the Innocence, for crying out loud, which is all <laughs> about how the greed of the Reagan era killed the hippie. And I would, uh, I would agree that the topics there are, um, are deep, but I don't think that, to me, I'm, uh, the, the songs themselves, you know, the, 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 the one note is, you know, it's a one-note pop song. It's a nicely well-crafted one-note pop song, but it is just the end of the innocence. It is just dirty laundry. And I think, I don't know. To me, I, I thought that uh, Glenn Fry was really trying to do something, you know, maybe a little more edgy or a little more out there than just, you know, trying to craft something that's going to be a top ten single. That is really interesting. That's, that's interesting. And I think, well, I think he also, um, you know, he was trying to do uh, more things where he was expanding himself into, you know, uh, music videos that were, you know, a little, you know, that were more interesting. And he was, you know, trying to do the the, the Miami Vice episode on, you know, Smuggler's mm-hmm. Booze, I think we've talked about before, which was an interesting concept. 
I think, yeah, I, I think he was, you know, I don't know if he was doing it to keep up with Henley. I mean, if you kind of see that, you know, the the guy you were, you know, working with is now, you know, getting, you know, 10 million albums and, uh, you know, is getting, you know, shaking hands with the president. What do you do? And I think he just sort of went in a different direction than that. He didn't go try and find the pop success that uh, Henley had. And another thing about Fry's solo career, uh, something that that came through in his solo music that I think you did not get out of the stuff he did with the Eagles was his love of uh, soul music. And a lot, I mean, his, Glenn Fry's solo discography, his, his solo albums are crammed with pop songs that are influenced by soul. You know, like Stax Volt and and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, and it's it's blatantly obvious. It's 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 um, unabashed worship <laughs> of that style of music, and it's obviously comes from a very heartfelt place for him. And yet, I don't I don't really get any soul influence in the Eagles. Yeah, that's quite true. I don't. I wouldn't have noticed that at all. From the from the Eagles side of it, I mean, I, no, not really. I mean, I think that's just was that was very much more uh, Heartland rock and roll, definitely, and you know, with hmm. the country, the country kind of an influence. Uh, well, that's really interesting. That's that's an interesting debate <laughs> about the solo careers of Don Henley and, uh, and Glenn Frey. I mean, I like them both. Oh yeah, I just think that they come from very different uh, very different perspectives. Absolutely, in terms of their solo career. Uh, I think we're kind of winding down here, but I didn't know if, uh, since you're a Rat fan, uh, if you knew much <laughs> about Arcade, which was Stephen Percy's uh, next band after Rat. Actually, I, I remember hearing the album and liking it, but I don't really remember like who else was in it or uh, if he was, um, uh, if there was any sort of thing. Let me pull it up and see if there's... I think they even put out two albums. I'm not sure if I knew and they they toured. I mean, he was really trying to make a go of it with this group, and then all of a sudden, Rat got back together. <laughs> yeah, I uh, <clears throat> I was uh, I was glad when they got back together because I thought they did a really good job with that. But ugh, Arcade Fire, not what I was looking for. I would agree with you that Rat was one of the more successful reunited hair bands. Yeah. Well, I think we, this was another one I think we mentioned before. Yeah, we talked that they, about them before. But. Well, that, that uh, a lot of the other ones, when they reformed, they tried to, be, to not be themselves. Yeah. And Rat really did, you know, try and stay with Just the Rat formula. Stay with what works. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's exactly when we were talking about in the last podcast with Van Halen, when they reform and put out that new single. You know, I don't want them to, you know, become a prog rock band. <laughs> Just give me some fucking Van Halen, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Nope, I can't see. Not finding it? Nope. Uh, should we talk at all about uh, Genesis? Because <laughs> Genesis gave us the solo careers of Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel, and Mike Rutherford as Mike and the Mechanics. That's a pretty good, uh, well, I guess, yeah. I, I, I yeah. <laughs> I, 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 it took me a while to go back and listen to the uh, Peter Gabriel era of uh, Genesis since I, Grew up in the 80s and listened to the uh, Phil Collins era, and, but 
Well, they, that's a pretty successful, uh, three pretty successful offshoots from one band. And we're not even mentioning, you know, Steve Howe. Oh, yeah. Well. So, uh, so that's another kind of a, a, just a petri dish for, uh, different connections. I mean, everybody has had just everything they've touched. It's been successful <laughs> on a massive scale. Yeah, I, I would love to hear what they would do if they reformed with Peter Gabriel, but he has said on numerous occasions that's just not ever going to happen. Yeah, and especially now that, because I'm sure that if that were to happen, Phil would have no problem fading into the back and being the drummer oh, yeah. again, but the problem is he can't drum anymore because of the nerve damage in his arms. So, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. So it is. It's kind of uh, pretty much off the table. Wow. But when you think about... Uh, Oh, I wouldn't mind if they both did, you know, singles and they can, you know, do some Gabriel songs from back then. And I think, I think I'd be, love to hear what they'd write from now. I think it I would mean, be great if they did a mega tour. I think people would get a kick out of it, even though it seems like there are very few people who like both. Really? Is this a Van Halen thing again? That this you can't like? Pretty much what it comes down to is the people who love the Peter Gabriel era of Genesis are very snotty and very dismissive <laughs> of the Phil Collins era Genesis. They view it as art versus commerce. Yeah. And so I think that fans of the Phil Collins era would be more likely to accept a Twin Towers tour. Mm-hmm. But I think, I honestly think that the Peter Gabriel fans, if there ever were such a tour, would either get up and leave during the Phil Collins portion or would boo because they just seem like big dicks. Oh, that's a shame. That, yeah. I could see that. That, that, uh, something about prog rock does make people seem pretentious about it, but which, which is a shame because there's, you know, those are really great albums. And, uh, you know, it, it, to me, you know, uh, I, I never delved deeply into what, uh, what the lyrics and all that stuff meant. I was just listening to it as, you know, an enjoyable, you know, um, songs and enjoyable production and all that kind of stuff. And they're really, uh, quite entertaining albums. And, you know, if you hear the word prog rock and you wonder, oh my God, is that too pretentious? It really isn't. It may be the people that are pretentious, but the music is not. Really, you don't think that uh, Peter Gabriel dressing up as a flower on stage is a little pretentious? I think it's weird, but I don't think that. You, but I, I think you know. Uh, I, I saw a video uh, of them doing a performance, you know, and him coming out there in all the different outfits and all that kind of stuff. But it didn't really have anything to do with the song. I mean, the song was still the song, and you know. It doesn't matter if it's done in six, eight time, you know, and it doesn't matter if there's, you know, 27 chord changes. If the music's good, the music's good, you know. I mean, to me, that's uh, a stop. When people hear, you know, prog rock or even if they hear jazz or if they hear, you know, something like that, they'll be like, oh, I, I don't know what that means. I can't understand that. I'm not going to listen to it. But it's still just music. You know, you don't, you know, when I listen to, uh, oh, crap, um, now I'm gonna. I'm sorry. I'm gonna play this game again here. Uh, <laughs> jazz album, um, odd rhythm times, uh, very famous piano piano player. Um, monk, n- n- not monk. Uh, he, he basically was like, it was like one album from this guy. 
and it was odd time signatures throughout the entire album. No, um, it's, 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 I, it's I can not, see the picture in my it's not head. Not Dave Brubeck. That's it. Okay, there you go. Okay, and do you remember the name of the album? Uh, it's uh, uh, time, time something. Yes. Uh, I want to say <laughs> time's up, but that's not right. Please don't sue me, Dave Brubeck. <laughs> All right, there we go. There it is. It's time out. There we go. Okay. Now, this is an album where, uh, if you, if you are a jazz studier or something like that, the entire album is odd syncopated rhythms and really, you know, deep jazz type stuff where they're just playing in things that make no sense. And if you, you know, you can look at chord charts and your brain will melt. <laughs> but if you just put the album on and listen to it, it's just, you know, interesting songs. They're just, you know, instrument, interesting instrumental songs that if you listen to it, you're not going to go, oh my God, that's, that's in 1216. Oh my God. That, 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 I can't <laughs> believe they're doing this. <laughs> and then they switch to a four, three. Oh my God. I'm a, you know. This sounds like calculus. Yes. It is just, just sounds like interesting, fun music. So don't get scared by Prague. Don't get scared by jazz and go listen to it. Don't get scared by a man in a flower suit. There you go. Listen to the flower people. Although I would say he is pretentious because he named his first three albums his own name. Yes. That's a dick move. And actually, actually his first four everywhere but North America. Because Peter Gabriel, the fourth Peter Gabriel, is known as security here in North America. And I'm not even sure how that happened. Probably some record label screw up. Probably some record probably said, stop doing that. That's how, uh, speaking of Prague, because, uh, oh golly, uh, Jeff Lynn's band, duh, uh, electric, electric, electric light orchestra, uh, they were considered kind of, kind of proggy, mm-hmm. and, uh, they have an album that in the United States is titled No Answer. And it is titled No Answer because the U.S. record label kept trying to find out from the European record label what the album was titled, and some assistant kept leaving messages, and nobody would answer, and so he finally left his boss a note that said, regarding the album's title, no answer. (laughs) And the next thing you know, the album's released in North America as no answer. (laughs) Oh, that's good. And and some poor little handler probably got fired for that. <laughs> well, there we go. We've uh, we've pretty much stuck a fork in our side order of awesome. Awesome. So uh, until next time, we remind you to please, please like our page on Facebook, Mr. 80s. Send us an email at mr80s at rocketmail.com. Visit our blog at mr80s.wordpress.com. And uh, like our uh, thing on uh, iTunes or leave comments there or on Podbean. Yes, definitely. If you haven't subscribed to us on iTunes yet, please do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And in all instances, Mr. 80s is M-I-S-T-E-R-8-0-S. And until next time, good night, Danny Aiello, (laughs) wherever you are.